Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How do you sum up a life? What do you include? What do you leave out? Heather Lendy, author of the new book, Find the Good, is the obituary writer for the Chilkat Valley News and a beautiful but often dangerous bit of land in Alaska. She says we're all writing our own obituary every day by how we live. Shannon Ballam, who teaches creative writing at Utah State University, wrote her brother Dylan's obituary. She felt that that wasn't enough, left too much unsaid. So she's been writing addendum poems to more fully characterize, celebrate, and mourn her brother. Heather Lundy has contributed uh, essays and commentary to NPR, the New York Times, National Geographic Traveler, among other newspapers and magazines. She's former contributing editor at Woman's Day. In addition to writing obituaries for the Chilkat Valley News, she's a columnist for Alaska Dispatch News. Her previous books include If You Lived Here, I'd Know Your Name and Take Good Care of the Garden and the Dogs. And we welcome her in. Heather Lundy, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be there. We, <laughs> we, we appreciate you being on the program. Uh, Shannon Ballam is in the studio with me. She earned her MFA in poetry writing from University of Nebraska, and she's uh, author of a poetry chapbook, The Red Riding Hood Papers, and a full-length poetry manuscript, Pretty Marrow. She teaches creative writing at USU and is a member of the Utah Arts Council Board of Directors. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Tom. So let me uh, turn first to Heather Lendy. I want to hear your, your story. I've been learning a bit about this on your website, which is, by the way, heatherlendy.com and, and from your book. So you, uh, you were living in Long Island, I believe, right? Yes, that's where I grew up. I grew up in Long Island, uh, uh, and as you say, and this resonates with me, uh, in a place big enough that you didn't really know your neighbors, and your parents liked it that way. Yes, very much so. My mother was from a, a small town in western Pennsylvania, and she really wanted to go where nobody knew her name. <laughs> I think she liked that. And yeah. I um, graduated from college and, and married a man who had a degree in forestry that I'm still married to. And um, we, uh, he wanted to go where the big trees were. So we bought a pickup truck and drove to Alaska and been there ever since. So some 30 years now. Yeah, so it, I was interested. In that little tidbit jumped out at me because I, I think we assume sort of the American... Uh, stereotype is we all want to live in Mayberry, or we all want to you know go to Cheers. Um, but but I guess mm-hmm. maybe if you if you'd grow up like your mom did, maybe you want to go someplace where nobody knows your name. Anyway, you did the you did the reverse. You you went to a small town. Yes, uh, Haynes is a, it's a very small town. I mean it and it's it there's plenty of people there though. There's about two thousand people, um, so it may not be as small as some towns in in Utah. Um, are, but it's um, very isolated, so we don't have, you can't drive from Haines to a shopping center, for instance, or a movie theater. Um, all the stores are locally owned. There's no box stores except by ferry or airplane to get to, so it um, has a much, um, it has a very small town feel. Uh, and I was interested to learn, uh, I was watching this on your website, this is from uh, the PBS in, in Alaska uh, interview with you. When someone dies, the, the whole community apparently pitches in. I think I write for a news, the newspaper, the weekly paper uh, in Haines at Chilkat Valley News, and the editor there, um, Tom Morford, uh, treats deaths the way everybody in town does, and, and that's as news, really. That's that's a big news story when somebody dies. Um, and... Um, and because we don't have a funeral parlor, and the, the cemetery is a, a town cemetery, everybody has a, a role to play. Um, in fact, uh, volunteers um, or family members uh, prepare bodies for burial. Uh, a local uh, hardware store sells caskets, or sometimes people make them. And um, the fire department uh, ambulance doubles as a hearse, and so the volunteers bring 
the body to the cemetery, the casket, and carry it out. So it's it's very much a, a community thing, hmm. and I do the obituaries. But, but this is sounding attractive to me. It's a place I'd maybe want to live. I, I guess there are probably some downsides. Maybe everybody's in everybody's business. Is it? Are there are there downsides in that way? I wouldn't tell anybody that you know you'll be happy if you move there. It's very isolated. It's cold. It's wet. It can be dark um, all winter long. Um, but for me, it's it's been a wonderful place to live, and uh, and and Alaska is beautiful. And I, it's not. I don't think people are in everybody's business. It's not that kind of town. There's actually um, a fair amount of privacy that's almost um, kind of a willed privacy. Even if you know something, you don't acknowledge it until the person tells you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the sense of community, though, is very, very attractive. So um, you, you took on this assignment. You started writing obituaries. Um, what, what, what's your process? You, 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 I guess you go visit with the family of the deceased? Yeah, I usually, um, you know, we have a weekly paper, so that gives me some, some room. Uh, for instance, if somebody uh, dies on a, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, usually, and the paper comes out on Thursday, I'll, um, the obituary will usually wait till the next week. Um, we'll, we'll get some information from the family um, that the person died and put it in our, our little column called Duly Noted and then note that there'll be a full obituary next week, so I'm not right there. Um, uh, asking questions at that immediate moment. Um, uh, however, if it's you know obviously earlier in the week and there's going to be a funeral on Thursday or Friday and somebody dies on a on a Saturday or Sunday or Monday, um, then I I make a few phone calls to the neighbors or friends usually, and depending on the type of death, if it's a traumatic death, um, it's uh, more challenging because of the the grief and the um, all of that. Um, sometimes it's someone that's been old and in bed and in hospice care for months, and the family will call me. Uh, you know, hey, you know, dad died. Come on over. We want to do the obituary right now. <laughs> and, and so that happens. And then I meet with the family and friends and sit down at the house and talk with them, ask questions, get the biographical information. And then the way our paper does it is. Um, the rest of the obituary is, is more like a feature on the person's life or a profile. So there's usually three or four different sources. For instance, if somebody was a school teacher, I might talk with a former student. Um, or um, if you know they um, uh, were a, a, a baker who always brought cookies to the neighbors, I'll, I'll find a neighbor to talk about that. And so we we do it. That that's just our format. So that's pretty much the way that I do it. And what uh, I know you've written that you you feel like this you can be of service to the family and and friends in that way. What what does that process do for them? Do you think they're they're talking about the the deceased? I, I think it helps. I, I hope it does. I mean, I I go in and I don't, uh, you know, I'm not crying. I try to keep very, um, I'm I'm try to be a calming presence and um, try. I, I find that. It's interesting when I when I go into a grieving household, I've learned that I say yes to the coffee, yes to the best chair, yes to the cookies because it helps the 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 family if they can take care of me a little bit. It's counterintuitive. I mean, the first time you're saying no, 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 thank you. You don't have to get me anything. But if I if they can do that, they kind of feel like they're a little bit on on better ground. It seems like firmer ground, and then. Um, 
I, I don't start with the death when I'm asking questions. I start with kind of the most, um, uh, the least emotional um, parts of the story. You know, what was, do you know what their, their mother's maiden name was? And, and what town were they born in? And, you know, how many brothers and sisters did they have? Where were they in the birth order? Things that, you know, what did they do when they were in, in, in high school? Or did they go to high school? Or, and things that might not end up in the obituary, but it gets people out of the immediate part of the death. And we wait till the death part to the very end once we're talking. Mm. Yeah, it does sound like a, a nice service that, that you can provide. Uh, on a return, of course, to uh, Heather Lundy, her book is uh, Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small-Town Obituary Writer. And she's talking about uh, Haynes, Alaska. I want to turn to Shannon Ballum, who uh, teaches creative writing at uh, Utah State University. Uh, so I wonder, uh, let's start with you reading the obituary you wrote for your brother, so that we can, as, as listeners, come to this as we would by just picking up the newspaper. And then we'll backtrack and learn, learn the story. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Dylan Alexander Thomas, April 20th, 1989 to July 7th, 2013, Syracuse, Utah. Dylan passed away on Sunday, July 7th, 2013. He was born on April 20th, 1989 in Ogden, Utah to David and Sally Thomas. He was the youngest of five children. Dylan lived the first several years of his life in Nordic Valley, Utah, before living in such places as South Ogden, North Ogden, Severn, Maryland, Logan, Utah, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. He lived in Syracuse, Utah for the past several years of his life. He was employed by Walmart and Little Caesars Pizza. Dylan was a musical genius, with guitar being his passion. He slept with his guitar every night. He was good-natured, funny, quirky, and loved by all who knew him. Many people who knew Dylan considered him to be their baby brother. He is survived by father, David L. Thomas, mother, Sally Perry Thomas, siblings, Shannon Ballum, Marcy Gross, Allison Frederick, Sean Thomas, nephews Jeremiah Peterson and Jaden Peterson, niece Olivia Chavez, stepmother Misty Thomas. He was preceded in death by his grandparents, Wilmer Bud Perry and Faye Thomas Perry, his cousin Daniel Perry, and his brother Aidan Thomas. Dylan, we love you so much. We miss you terribly. We will never forget you. Rock on forever, little brother. So there's the obituary. And that is obituaries go is fairly brief. Yes. You, you see some that go on forever. Um, and uh, that can get expensive. Plus, when I'm reading obituaries, I, uh, the longer ones, I maybe tend to skip over. Having said that, I had the experience of writing uh, my father's obituary, and I tended to ramble a bit. I guess I wanted to pack as much as I could in. He was 93. Uh, so I want to start with what, what, you, what you leave in, what you leave out, and what you put in. So some of the details you put, uh, he slept with his guitar. That's a nice yeah. Nice detail. Funny, quirky. Yeah. Loved by all. Mm -hmm. But of course, you're leaving a lot out, too. Yeah. Um, I think during, as I was writing the obituary, um, at first we weren't even going to write an obituary or have a funeral at all because his death was very traumatic. Um, I decided that it was necessary, no matter how painful, um, to write Dylan's obituary and to have a funeral and to... Um, celebrate in that way his life, um, bring everybody together. I knew it was very important. So um, that obituary was 
the most difficult piece of writing I've ever completed. Um, and it is written in, you know, an obituary kind of a voice, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and as a poet, I resisted that. But um, we talked before the show about using other obituaries as models. And I used my grandmother's obituary as a model and just really, I, I was so grief stricken that I just sort of followed exactly the information organizational process that they'd gone through. And um, that's how I wrote the obituary. Um, yeah. So I wonder, uh, maybe at this point we could bring in the, the background. Why did the family not want to have an obituary or, or a funeral? Um, <clears throat> our family struggles with alcoholism. Uh, my parents have ver- struggled significantly with alcoholism um, and every, all the siblings. And it's something that goes beyond the immediate family. It's a, a, a disease. And um, Dylan actually drank himself to death. Um, and it could be, have been on purpose. Um, that's what we suspect. Um, he was only 24 years old. And so we didn't expect this to happen. Um, he said, I'm, I don't want to live anymore. Um, he was hiding the alcohol. Um, and then one day, you know, it just poisoned him to death. And so it was so traumatic and so shameful um, to all of us that, you know, the original impulse was just to push it away and pretend that it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's a very understandable impulse. I, I can understand the family just wanting to let's not even go there. But you felt that uh, you and I guess the family as well needed something, right? Yeah. And when I said, I will do this for Dylan, I will face this tragedy, um, and when I started to put everything together, which was so difficult, just gathering everything, the pictures, you know, organizing the funeral, inviting people, planning the funeral, the obituary, um, as that process started to unfold, my family was so grateful that mm-hmm. I was doing it. Every Thank you so much for doing this. Mm-hmm. This is necessary. We couldn't have done it. Um, <clears throat> I am known for being this a very strong person in the family, a leader in the family. So I knew that this was the role I needed to take. Mm-hmm. And what did it do for you and the family, do you think? Um, it's made us <clears throat> closer in a way, I think. Um, instead of ignoring it, instead of being in denial, um, it, it forced conversation. It forced us to be together as a family during the funeral. Um to allow our friends to help us grieve through that process because the friends, you know, they don't know what to do, but they can come to a funeral. They can come to a dinner. Um, so I feel like in a way it's, it's helped us. It helped us to start that process, which I think is just absolutely necessary. Hmm. We turn back to Heather Lendy. Uh, I wonder what, uh, what you would say to that question. What does, this is a service you provide. You go in and talk to the family and, and friends. Then you uh, publish the obituary what does what that process and, and the obituary do, do you think, for for the for those who are left behind? Well, I think I think very much so like what, what Shannon what she felt in her own family, um, I think that happens in a small community. Um, within the family itself and within the, the greater community. Um, so I do uh, I think people wanna I, for me, I guess and, and um, especially when someone um, dies young and tragically, 
um, I, I rely on something that um, a friend of mine said when her son died in a, a fishing accident, that he had um, died in a minute, but he lived for 20 years. And she wanted to talk about his life, not focus on the death part. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's something that I, I remember, you know, the, the tragedy, the immediate tragedy is so, uh, as Shannon um, knows, is, is um, it's just so awful. And... Um, what I can do as an obituary writer is focus on the life and ask some questions. You know, did he, you know, tell me about, oh, he slept with his guitar, those details. But I just keep asking. And so maybe as a, uh, somebody who is not in the family or as, as close, I can ask more questions and bring out more details. And that helps. That I think it helps the family remember. And oftentimes people get out photo albums, they show me pictures, and then I can use some of that, you know, descriptions in the, in my um, obituary of what, how they looked or what, you know, things they like to do. I could see in the pictures, even if the family wasn't able to talk about that at the moment. The other thing um, that the Chilcot Valley News does, and this is a newspaper policy, is um, we uh, always list the cause of death. And um, so that also... Um, brings a discussion with the family of, of how, how we want to um, deal with, with um, something like um, what happened with um, Dylan. And I think it also, uh, in, a, in a weird way that you wouldn't think so, that's counterintuitive, it does remove, um, as, as Shannon was talking about, I think it helps lift some of that feeling of shame because you suddenly realize that lots of other people have gone through the same thing mm-hmm. and that it's... Um, that that doesn't diminish the love and the uh, impact that, that life had in the community, mm-hmm. but that part goes way at the end, not at the beginning. Right. So Shannon, I wonder. Uh, one of the worries going in was uh, maybe a, a stigma. Right. And there's there's some some shame. Did, did having gone through this process, I don't know if you got any response from others to the obituary, or was it, was it positive in the end um, to put this out there? Yes, I mean, uh, the cause of death is not listed in the obituary, and I think, you know, partly that's why I knew that I needed to write more, and that's why I started to write the what I'm calling the obituary addendums, which will be a collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and those poems have got some very strong response. Um, when I've done readings, you know, people come up, up to me and people cry, people say, you know, that's so brave, and thank you, you know, I couldn't do that, and um, that's part of the reason I'm doing this, because I know that the poems will reach out and help other people, and I'm just trying to be very honest in the poems, um, and to show, you know, all sides of Dylan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to take a break here shortly, and uh, when we come back, I'll have uh, uh, Shannon Ballum read uh, read some of her poems. These are addendum poems, and it, in, in a way, you're responding to your feelings at having to leave out so much in the obituary, I think, right? Yes. Um, So I just want to read this, uh, just a a paragraph from uh, Heather Lundy's uh, book. This is from uh, page five. Find the Good is is the title. Very touching to me. Um, Talking about a couple of obituaries. He may have died mumbling and confused in a nursing home, but in his day he was a fine actor, dashing host, bon vivant, that you would have uh, loved playing charades with. 
She was a terrific big sister, the daughter who always baked cookies for her dad, and had planned on attending an art college before she was killed in a car wreck. No one wants the last hour of her life to eclipse the 17 years before. So that, that emphasizes, uh, Heather Lundy, what you were saying before, that, uh, that you emphasize the life, not the death. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's what an obituary does. Yeah. It illuminates the life. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear some uh, poems from uh, Shannon Ballum. We'll hear more from uh, Heather Lendy. Um, she was casting about for advice, perhaps she could pass on to her children, um, and, and she found it. And I'll just preface this by uh, her friend John. I love this. He came up with, uh, in the end, uh, be nice to the dog and don't do meth. That was that's how he distilled. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's not bad. We'll uh, we'll hear what uh, Heather Lendy's uh, advice is, and hear some poems following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Stokes Nature Center's 18th annual auction gala. It's all about water. 6 p.m. Saturday, November 7th at the Logan Country Club. Dinner includes meat and vegetarian entrees, desserts, and full beverage service. Details at loganature.org. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Conserving electricity can both help the environment as well as your electricity bill. Changing your habits can help reduce the amount of electricity you use. Embrace natural lighting. Open up your blinds and curtains to allow sunlight. Turn off the lights. As you leave a room, make sure to double check that all the lights are turned off. Use candles or low-lighted lamps. Use less hot water. Heating water takes up more energy than cold or warm water. Use ceiling fans instead of an air conditioner. Wash laundry in cold water instead of warm water. The average home pollutes more than a small car, so by following these simple guidelines, you can help save money and keep the air and water clean. This is Nicole Jackson from the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How do you sum up a life? What do you include and what do you leave out? We're talking about obituaries on the program today with Heather Lendy, who lives in Haines, Alaska, uh, a small town there. Sounds like a great place to live, a real sense of community there. And uh, one service she provides as a writer for the newspaper is she writes obituaries. Uh, and her new book is Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small Town Obituary Writer. Um, the website, by the way, is heatherlendy.com. We're also talking with Shannon Ballum, who teaches creative writing at Utah State University. She wrote the obituary for her uh, youngest brother, Dylan, and uh, arranged the funeral and uh, led in, in that respect. But she felt that the obituary left too much out, and so now she's been writing uh, addendum poems. We're going to hear some of those poems as we go along. I want to start this segment with uh, Heather Lendy. I was uh, I was thinking why, it, even before I wrote my father's obituary, that was, that was it was actually a good experience. Of course, he he lived ninety three years, had a good life, and uh, though we miss him, it was uh, I guess that that does help. But uh, even previous to that, I I tend to read obituaries. 
and I'm trying to think why, and maybe maybe it's just one reason is to remind myself of my mortality, and uh, maybe that I need to live a good life. <laughs> Heather Landy, you you one of one of your sayings is we're we're writing our obituaries every day. The good news is we haven't gone to press yet. I like that phrase. Um, so I, w- I wonder if you, at first you could tell me about your friend John. I love his. His, uh, you know, if you distill your advice to your, he's only got one child. Be nice to the dog and don't do meth. Right. That's John works as a um, uh, uh, an, an investigator in the public defender's office, so he sees a lot of um, uh, hardship. And I, I was stuck. I, I was asked by a um, uh, a journal to um, come up with uh, last, you know, sort of wise words. And I think people figured because I'd written, I don't know, 400 obituaries that I must know something. And um, I also wrote these family and life columns. I have five children and five grandchildren now. And I, you know, I'm very reluctant to say that I do. So I asked John, I said, help, I'm having trouble with this. And then he said, oh, Heather, just tell him, you know, be nice to the dog and don't do meth. But <laughs> I didn't, I, I'm not as pithy as that. And um so I, I thought about it, and finally the, the editor was like, look, Heather, we got to get this. Just give me three words. So I, I pretended I was on my deathbed, and I you know, could only croak out three, and I, there's so many things I'd want to tell my grandchildren or people that I left behind. And I finally just figured, well, find the good, which is kind of like what John has said. I mean, be nice to a dog, you're finding the good. And, and then I figured that... Um, if you could find the good in people and situations and anything you do, your job, your your family, if you look for it, um, then uh, then things will go okay for you. Everything else ought to fall into place. Mm-hmm. And I um, and I realized that that as I started to write through all of these, that 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 actually um, is a habit that has come from writing obituaries because I do try to find in each life the good parts and. Um, those and it's not that I ignore the bad um, uh, but I I purposely look for something good that we can remember that person by whether it's it's a lesson maybe or even if somebody's reading the obituary that doesn't know the person which is like what you're talking about a lot of people just read them that there's something there that they say oh you know that's that was pretty neat or gosh um, I gotta I'll, I'll remember that so I, I look, and I also look for the stories. I think, um, and and to try to help illuminate that. And the other thing I do, that's part of. That's funny. My editor. I'm not. I don't come to this just like it's. I created it. As Shannon pointed out, there is sort of a format for obituaries, and I follow that. But also, he's um, kind of uh, the the dark to my light. Let's say, <laughs> and um, his advice is advice. I think that's good for any any writer, uh, creative or obituary or otherwise. And he always says to me, prove it. Heather, prove it. Um, and and that's where the stories come, is in the proving. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, if uh, somebody says, you know, he, he would, you've always heard, give him the shirt off your back. Well, then I'll ask, did he ever do that? And not in a, not in a wise guy kind of a way, but then they'll say, well, no, but you know what I mean? He was really generous. And I'll say, well, tell me what you mean. Because generous for one person is different for another person. So um, then, he, then the family said, "Well, um, he was on a, a, a moose hunt on the Yukon River, and the um, uh, the engine quit on the motor quit on one of the boats, and um, so he gave them his motor, and he rode the rest of the way." 
hmm. in his own river Bodhi road. And right. so there it is. And that's a different kind of generous than, um, you know, um, giving uh, money to the library is a, is a different kind of generous, not neither better nor worse, but the detail tells more about the person because that even the moose hunting told more about the guy mm-hmm. than, um, than just giving the shirt off your back. And when you, you always have limited spaces, um, Shannon, uh, no doubt found in hers because in most newspapers um, the family has to pay for the obituary so it's by the word in our paper it's limited by um, the ads that week or how many pages whether it's eight pages or 12 pages or 16 pages and so sometimes I only get 500 words which is still big by by most standards and sometimes I can get 700 or 800 words but I'm always counting the words and trying to figure out how to get the most in about the person um, and and say what needs to be said. And so just the form itself is what sometimes dictates what goes in and what, what doesn't. Hmm. Uh, let's turn to, back to uh, Shannon Ballum. Uh, something Heather Lundy said there, the, the stories, story and story, you know, as you know, as a writer, stories are powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of our, our coming to terms with, with life and, and death. That might be a good segue into uh, having you read one of your poems. Okay. These are uh, addendum poems, is is what you're calling them. This is responding to the fact that you couldn't fit everything you wanted to into the obituary. Yeah. Um, I like what Heather said about, you know, prove it, be specific. Um, I think one of the limitations, especially when I was writing my brother's obituary, abstractions, generalities, um, and those aren't enough, especially for, you know, as a poet, I, 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 it wasn't enough. Um, so I've been writing several obituary addendums. Um, I was several years older than my youngest brother, Dylan. And uh, some people actually thought I was his mother, but I was, you know, a teenager. This is obituary addendum number, number seven, Dylan at practice. Dylan, Dylan, when I was 13... On the junior high volleyball team, I hauled you in your baby carrier to the gym. I held you aloft and all the girls stopped, stunned by your dimpled smile. They rushed to touch you, kiss you, pinch your plump cheeks. We tossed you in the air, tickled by your squeal, by the arms we swung you in stumbling circles. We held you high in the shine of the gym, like the prize we'd never win. Nikes squeaking on blonde gloss, fresh sweat, glistening, flushed faces, everything beginning, you aloft, smiling, the youngest, held above everything, a little silver spittle on your pink, pink lips. Later, in the dark, I cradled you, felt your greedy suck collapse the plastic bottle in my hand. In your ninja turtle pajamas, you staggered into the dazzling hallway light, luminous, you, before you slipped away. Forever I will see you standing there, drenched with light, my youngest brother, my golden trophy. Beautiful. That uh, takes him back to, you know, when he was a baby, and you you see him there bathed in light. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a full range of, of uh, facets of your brother that you've treated in, in your poems. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them quite dark. Yes. 
understand. Yeah, those I won't be reading today yeah. on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I'm looking at all aspects, um, exploring my response, you know, trying to heal, obviously, from the death, which I don't think is actually ever going to be possible. But um, to give Dylan his life back, you know, he was a beautiful, amazing little boy, and we loved him. He didn't walk until he was well over a year old because we all carried him around, you know, (laughs) and he was, he was our prize. He was our little brother and he was just adorable. Mm -hmm. And what's the response you get to these poems when you, when you perform them? This is of course universal. We've, we've all lost loved ones, I think. And, um, there are not many dry eyes sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, people are, are, are very happy that I've done it, especially, you know, my family members are, are, are very glad that I'm doing this. Um, mm-hmm. At first, I was a little scared that maybe my my father might um, not want me to talk about it. Um, but he he I talked to him the other night, and he started telling me more details about Dylan. Like you know, he loved Pantera, the band, mm-hmm. and um, different things like that. So, and he's like, and I hope you write you can write a poem about this. Mm-hmm. So I've been taking notes that way. We're talking with Heather Lendy, author uh, most recently of Find the Good, Unexpected Life Lessons from a Small-Town Obituary Writer, and with Shannon Ballum, who uh, teaches creative writing at Utah State University and has been writing addendum poems, uh, adding to her obituary she wrote of, of her youngest brother, Dylan. would love to hear your experience. Get your thoughts. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio as well. Uh, Heather Lendy, I... Uh, wonder, I think one of the things we're trying to do in obituaries is parse out the meaning, right? The, the meaning of the life. You, you write in your book, before I compose an obituary, I ask myself, what truths will outlive the facts of this person's life? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I like to think that I can, I can do a little more with, with what I've been given to help, and and as and I think as Shannon said, um, I've often, you know, wondered: is it okay to to write this? Um, and I tend to do it right in the obituary or in in the stories in my books later on, where I'm more my response to what's happened is more in there, but um, which isn't in the obituary. But I think, um, you know, I I like for instance, we had a a, a native uh, elder who was a kind of a, you know, by any definition would be sort of a wise old sage. And he, he spoke at community gatherings. He was on the library board and on the board of um, several different organizations, very involved in lots of things in town. And um, he died, an, an old man in bed. Um, and after he died, um, uh, his wife, his widow, um, told me that um, he uh, couldn't read or write. And I was completely stunned because he quoted scripture, he quoted poetry, he, the news. He was, and he was on the Friends of the Library board. And it turns out that um, when he was a, as, a, as a child, he was very dyslexic, and he learned to listen very well. And, and he was very bright and to memorize things. And he worked as an equipment operator um, fixing machines, and he could do that very well. Um, and I just, you know, the, the truth of that, one, sure, the story of, of Art Jess's life um, is is as interesting as any and as inspiring, but the I think the 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 thing that 
rose to the top in that was that, and I didn't say it so much, I think somebody else might have said it, I quoted somebody that it came through, was that, um, you know, the thing that was his so-called disability is what made him the man he was and became his greatest strength. He was such a good speaker and a good listener, and it was because of something that somebody else might have considered a fault. Yeah, that's, that, that is profound, isn't it? And I think any life, any person would have those those details. Right, and so and I think when people read it then, they'll look into their own, you know, their, their own situations, and I think we all have things that we know um, are, are a weakness that we've turned to a strength. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's what, that's kind of, in a way, the story of <laughs> human existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the, you know your I don't know what you call it motto slogan your you know, uh, find the good uh, you have this and you referenced this earlier you have this ongoing uh, argument I guess debate with your editor <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. and he says you're as you put it habitually walking on the sunny side of the street but you you want to purposely yeah. You want to purposely find the good. And I, I think of um, my wife and I have a, an ongoing debate as well. She says uh, that at, at her funeral, she doesn't want to just have, as she puts it, a whitewash. You know, presenter is a saint. She wants to mm-hmm. be presented warts and all. And then I, I tell her, well, I'll try, but I don't know if I can because I don't know if that's appropriate at that juncture. I don't know what you think. I think you should present her the way she really she really was. I think mm-hmm. she's right. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, because the more, and again, it's all in the details, and it's not, um, it's not good or bad, you know. But if, um, you know, I've written about people that, in, you know, where, where if their best friend says, oh, boy, you know, she was um, so frugal that she kept a box of ribbon that was marked, you know, too short to use. <laughs> and, but she still kept the scraps in there. You know, and but you have her best friends say that, and all of her friends will laugh. They know that's true, and it's not. But it's not a a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It defines their their per their personality. And so I think um, the the question is is who's delivering it, um, and what kind of message you 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 are delivering. And you never get somebody. Um, for instance, I wouldn't get a local uh, one of the the Presbyterians to talk about how the person always had these great New Year's parties and could, um, you know, mix martinis all night long because <laughs> they're temperate and that would be seen right, as a criticism. Right. But right. you'd get somebody that enjoyed mm-hmm. that to say it. Yeah, the context. Um, yes, th- uh, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, yeah, take your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you bet. You okay. know, or like my sister Kathleen at my my mother's funeral. My sister Kathleen gave the eulogy. My mother was a principal in a Quaker school pretty reserved, pretty what you'd kind of expect, you know, monochromatic, not flashy at all. My sister Kathleen is a very flashy New Yorker with jewelry and hair done and designer clothes. And Kathleen began the eulogy as saying, um, I often wonder if I was adopted (laughs) because she's so different than my mother. And that was just funny because you could see how different they were. Hmm. And then she talked about my mother being much more, um, you know, conservative but also all of that was also her strength mm-hmm. yeah yeah i'll take your point i'll all right i'll tell my wife i'll do it i'll, I'll put it in context um, yeah I, or get one of her 
friends, or usually right. it's better to have somebody that's not too close to do it because they're yeah. too sad. You find yeah. somebody that knew her well enough, and you have the another trick to that, or trick, or uh, advice to that is you have you sit down with family members and you gather the information. And I actually I often write um, turn what I've heard in an obituary into a eulogy for the family, and I'll write it in the voice of the person giving it, sort of a ghostwriter. Hmm. And that helps because the family has all given me the details, but they're not always sure how to say it. Yeah, that's a great and idea. I can help them yeah, and excellent. put it together for them. Let's uh, go to an email. This is from Gary and Logan. This is, I helped my mother write the obituary for my grandfather. He was a young grandfather who died suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, uh, it was difficult to uh, narrow our memories and the elements of his large personality to a piece of writing, so we had a lot of fun information in our rough draft. Once we visited the funeral home, our writing was changed to fit a more formulaic style of obituaries. It did feel underwhelming once the mortuary had their hands on it, but we did feel it was still a nice homage to him, uh, but for the public. It's nice to hear how Shannon continues to give her brother's death more life, uh, keeping him included. My family has found our own ways to keep our grandfather and his life present with us. That's a nice comment from from Gary, and I guess you can you can do a version for yourself privately, as you're you know, I guess that's a bad example with you because you're putting these out publicly a poem. Um, but you can write whatever you want, and then and then you present a certain facet of that uh, to the to the public. Uh, I'd like to uh, Shannon have you read. Um, occurred to me we're we're talking about one one thing we do with obituaries is we, we, we try to hold on, right? Mm-hmm. I got that sense from obituary addendum number nine. I wonder if you could uh, find that quickly and, and read that for us. The, the staring game is what, you, what yeah. you call this one. I wanted to explain a little, um, because one of my friends was confused as to what this game is. Um, one of the games, many games we used to play, and I'm going to start writing more poems about different childhood games that we played as well. Um, the staring game where you stare into each other's eyes as long as you can, and mm-hmm. and then you're not supposed to blink. The blinker is the. Uh, I think we've all done that. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Obituary addendum number nine: the staring game. Oh, Dylan, the night the first snow fell, the first snow after your death, I dreamt we were climbing Mount Timpanogos, one rock face so high the top was invisible below a sheer drop into space on the cliff in cold we held one another you were on my lap a naked toddler then from my slippery lap you slipped off the cliff for a moment i lost you but by one arm i caught you pulled you back pulled you close till our noses touched now we're eye to eye i know the game i know the rules i stare and stare my eyes are dry. If I blink first, I lose. Hmm. You're 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 trying to hold on. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I think that's one thing we we do. Yep. That's that's uh, one thing we want to do with our with with our loved ones who passed on. Uh, Heather Landy, I, I, uh, this video that I made reference to earlier, you say that a couple times you've you've quit writing obituaries. Uh, you've always come back, but uh, why did you quit? Um, because they're too hard. I've, I've quit when young people die sometimes and I'm close. I've, I've, um, and then I've also, um, <laughs> actually gotten mad at my editor for changing some things that were, <laughs> seemed very small, but were, um, important to a family at that time. 
as um, as Shannon's you know poetry reveals, there's there's a lot of grief um, and there's a lot of uh, uh, really um, close to the bone uh, emotions that happen when you're writing an obituary that aren't revealed in it. And so something as simple as saying. Uh, in a in an obituary for an old woman that ran a hotel on um, whose husband um, was disabled, um, having the neighbor say, um, "I said, you know, the neighbor joked that um, you know um, Clarence um, carried the bags, Hilma did everything else, you know, painted the house and <laughs> painted the hotel and made, and and, I, and he removed the word joked, and of course it was you know sort of a, said jokingly, but that really hurt the neighbor's feelings. Mm. And so even though it didn't, so nobody reading the obituary would have noticed it. It was, um, I had to explain to them that I, I hadn't done that and that was hard. So, but also when, when, when young people die, it's just so painful. And, you know, like a death like Dylan's, if it was hard and, you know, it's, it's hard all the way around. It's hard on the person like me who would have, if, if, um, Shannon lived in my town having to write that. It just is hard. Mm-hmm. And you just think to yourself, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is um, somebody dies and the family calls you up and they want you to do it. And so you try it again. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a service. Yeah, it does sound like a real service. Uh, you, can, you can help. Uh, I know, Shannon, you wanted to especially read a poem called My Paper Boat, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's do that now. Okay. This is uh, My Paper Boat for Dylan. I wrote this poem several years ago actually and I, I I wrote it and I didn't I it didn't have a person to whom it was attached there's a you and I didn't I didn't know who that person was but as soon as as soon as Dylan passed away I knew that this poem had been written uh, I guess presciently for him and um this poem appears in my collection and I'm asking everybody who has my collection to go in and write for Dylan mm. um on the page that this appears um, the poem I'll explain uh, a little bit. Um, I was walking along the Logan River here in Logan, and um, I saw a piece. I saw something in the river, and I didn't know what it was. And I thought it was at first. I thought it was an albino trout, um, which I hadn't seen for a long time. So I, I kept getting closer and closer to this thing to figure out what it was. Um, my paper boat for Dylan. You were an albino trout, waving its tail in the river's cold current. But when I crept closer, I saw you were a white swath of plastic, perhaps fabric torn from a dress or paper. You were a suicide note or a love poem snagged on a ragged branch. I wanted to peel off my socks, wade into the shock of winter runoff, wanted to take you with me your words, your little body. I imagine someone folded you into a warm pocket, dropped you by accident, or pinned you to a tree till spring wind ripped you down. Why did I not save you, lay you in the sun? Why did I not lift you, moss limp and lovely, press your river-blurred words to my face? You are my love note to the world, my paper boat. I wish you could let go and swirl away to a place unblemished where light could pour its honey onto your face. I wish you could let go and forget I stood here on the bank, 
body filled with river stones, hand clutching a heavy set of keys. I should have opened my mouth to taste you, chewed and swallowed you, rescued you from unsnagging into new violence, tumble lick of rocks, river gnashing you, ragdoll. Why did I not kneel, crawl into the river to you, my bright pinwheel? That is uh, Shannon Ballam reading her poem, My Paper Boat, now for Dylan. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I just want to uh, close with, with Heather Lendy. Um, I'm curious, your, your slogan and the title of your book, Find the Good, and as we write obituaries, I, I think that directs us to, as you put it, we're all writing our own obituary every day. The good news is the, the press hasn't closed. So I'm curious, what, the, the, finding the good, what, what's the good for you? I think the good for me is that I'm here and that, you know, we're all still here. And um, it seems to me that it's um, it's almost disrespectful of all the people I've written about to, to wake up in the morning and be, and be grumpy about that. Um, and I think I also find the good in remembering, um, and particularly remembering um, the good parts, whether it's in my own family or whether it's um, with the people I know that have come and gone. And I don't think any of us really leave forever. I mean, um, as, as Shannon points out, there's no such thing really as healing from a, a death or a loss. It just um, adds a layer to our, our lives. And that life um, was, makes mine richer, having known the person. Or, and I, I, um, I guess it's, it's not that hard then to find the good. And I, I, maybe because I've written so many obituaries, I know that just, that's just how life rolls. I mean, we're, we're born, we live, and then we die. And I'm lucky to still be among the living, so I feel like, what am I going to do with, with that, that time I still have? How am I going to make it better for somebody else, I guess? Um, that makes any sense. It does. That's a good place to end it. Heather Lindy has been one of our guests. Find the Good is her new book. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, and it was nice to meet you, Shannon. Yeah, thank you, Heather. And Shannon uh, Ballum, who is uh, a teacher of creative writing at Utah State University. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's great. And uh, we're, we thought it appropriate to go out to today with an obituary. Uh, this, I believe, is Nancy Williams, who uh, collects obituaries. I didn't know that. Uh, and uh, I believe she's she's reading Will Pitkin's obituary, another another mm-hmm. friend of uh, UPR. So let's hear this obituary. Uh, thanks for listening today. Will's son, Joe Pitkin, wrote one of the world's greatest obituaries for his father. Would that we all could live so that our children would write such a wonderful farewell for us. It's worth sharing, and I want to end today by reading it to you. Willis Lloyd Pitkin, Jr., the son of Willis L. and Dorothy Schuler Pitkin, died July 21, 2013. He did not expect to meet Heavenly Father, but if such a meeting occurred, Willis was likely the less flabbergasted of the two. Will was born February 20, 1936, and lived until 1969 in California. He was married three times to Mary Frederica Callaghan, who gave him a stepdaughter, Regan, and two sons, David and Paul, to Sandra Sanderson, who gave him a son, Joe, and two daughters, Sarah and Clarity, and to Terry Haynes Buschetti, who gave him four stepsons, Rock, Brian, Tim, and Russ. 
thorough and conscientious training from his first two wives prepared him for a wonderful third marriage. He lived to mourn the loss of Brian, Dave, and Regan's first daughter, Mary Helen. Will received his bachelor's degree in English from the University of Southern California in 1958, promptly began graduate school, and received his doctorate from the same university in 1973. When he finally applied for graduation, the dean of the USC Graduate School emerged from his office to congratulate Will as the student who had made the slowest progress towards a doctorate that he had ever encountered. During his graduate studies and for many years afterward, Will worked as a teacher of college English, most of these years, and the best of them, at Utah State University. He helped and inspired and loved thousands of students who remember him for his wit, his generosity, his deep knowledge, and his disdain for academic fashions. He was likelier to wear a t-shirt and shorts to class than a coat and tie. He preferred always to be called Will rather than Dr. Pitkin. He wrote a textbook on writing called Generating Prose, a book considered unfashionable almost as soon as he'd finished it, but it was no less a good book for that. Like his father, Will was a lifelong gardener. He kept many dozens of chickens, cultivated hundreds of heirloom varieties of tomatoes and squash and garlic and strawberries spared thousands of tomato hornworms. Over his life, he gave away great piles of fruit and vegetables to friends, colleagues, his children, neighbors, strangers, visiting home teachers, and anyone who looked like he would be cheered up by a handful of fresh tomatoes. Also like his father, he was deeply troubled by any kind of waste. It pained him to see people treat as garbage anything which could be spread on his garden as fertilizer. In broad daylight, and sometimes by night, Will took the grass clippings that neighbors had left at the curb for garbage pickup. The whole community had contributed to his compost heap. It was harder still for him to watch someone throw into the trash anything which might be eaten by one of his beloved animals, including his most beloved animal, Homo sapiens. He regarded the expiration dates on food packaging as quaint advisories which he might, at his discretion, disregard. He spoke slowly but tirelessly. He wrote hundreds of letters to the editor of the Herald-Journal. At least it seemed that many. Letters shining a light wherever he saw thoughtlessness or hypocrisy or self-righteousness. Nonconformists, gay people, misfits, and anyone who felt friendless in the Cache Valley knew from his letters that they had a friend in Will. Years of linguistic training and a natural talent for goofing off made him into a formidable Scrabble player. He impressed hundreds of opponents with his ability to make one word into another, to dredge up long-forgotten words, and to concoct plausible-sounding terms that no one at the table dared challenge. Language was, for him, a source of joy and mystery and beauty, and people who spoke with him or read a note from him or played a game with him came away feeling as though language was richer than they had realized. He is at peace now, survived by his wife, Terry, daughters Regan Pitkin-Butler, Sarah Sanderson Pitkin, and Clarity Sanderson-Jonker. Sons Paul, Joe, Rock, Tim, and Russ. 
15 grandchildren and one great-grandson. We miss him. That was UPR contributor Nancy Williams reading the obituary of Will Pitkin. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Arizona is rich in history, from the 1800s all the way back to the late Triassic period. You can stitch together a wonderful road trip that winds out of Flagstaff on to Montezuma Castle National Monument to Petrified Forest National Park and ends at Hubble Trading Post National Historic Site. Along the way, you'll experience fascinating chapters of geologic and cultural history. At Montezuma Castle, 45 minutes south of Flagstaff and just off Interstate 17, a short walk places you in front of a five-story tall cliff dwelling that offered safety from invaders. It stands 100 feet above the valley floor, and it's nestled into an alcove. The site was misnamed Montezuma Castle in the late 1800s by whites who thought the structure had been built by the Aztec people. The original owners, members of the southern Sanagua people, called this area home from roughly 1100 to 1425 A.D. Stroll the short trail that loops around a vegetated landscape below the castle, and you'll find great views as well of the remains of Castle A. That dwelling once rose 60 feet and was home to about 100 residents. From Montezuma's castle, it's 95 miles via Arizona 87 to Winslow, and then 35 miles east on Interstate 40 to Holbrook. Finally, another 19 miles southeast on Arizona 180 leads you into Petrified Forest National Park and its unusual landscape. There's no lodging within the park, and you have to leave by sundown, so you will need to make some tough decisions if you have just one day to visit. Do you take time to tour the Rainbow Forest Museum with its dinosaur displays, or do you hike out to the Agate House? A building built of petrified wood is pretty cool, so stretch your legs with a walk to the house. Then head north and deeper into the park to the Crystal Forest Trail. Wander this path, and you'll find yourself surrounded by petrified wood with its hues of yellow, red, and green, black, and white. Blue Mesa is another great stop. There's a trail there that takes you down into another colorful landscape of badlands, and chunks, logs, and even slabs of petrified wood in shades of red, blue, yellow, and black. The northern end of the park is anchored by the Painted Desert, a great place for sunset photos. Here you'll also see the Painted Desert Inn, which someday could put the Park Service back into the lodging business, but today it's just a museum piece. Back on Interstate 40, drive 22 miles east to Chambers, and then north on US 191 for about 38 miles to Ganado and Hubble Trading Post. This authentic trading post was opened by John Lorenzo Hubble in 1878 on the Navajo Reservation. Although it was added to the National Park System in 1967, Hubble is not a museum piece, but rather an active trading post. As such, it still holds richly woven Navajo rugs, jewelry, and other Native American artworks for sale. If you have a little more free time, you could extend your trip by heading 39 miles north on 191 to Canyon de Chaix National Monument. For Wild About Utah, this is Kurt Repencheck from National Parks Traveler. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. 
This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.